we thank you that we can come and to open your word to see yourself revealed within its pages. For we see you in all of your glory on display in exactly the format that you wanted us to have, to study, to meditate upon. And we ask that the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts. For each one of us is in a different place. Each one of us is struggling through some kind of avenue, but we ask that through our time in your word that we can leave this place changed because you're working within us to make us more like your beloved son. So we ask that you will receive all of the glory from the time that we spend within its pages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, finally, the holiday weekend is amongst us, and even though, once again, it's raining outside, normally for Memorial Day, it's the opportunity for new blockbuster books to come out, and blockbuster movies, and for the most part, if it wasn't for the pandemic, uh, that's what we'd be looking for. And so, um, to get those books, and to get those movies, and to schedule times in which we can see them is one of the highlights of, of the summer. And for most of us, we like a good story or a good movie to have a happy ending. Most of us, we don't like to read or watch tragedies. They're, nobody likes a sad ending. When you watch a love story, you want to see them finally get together at the end. It's not thrilling that to have uh, all this love tension and then at the end they go on their separate ways. That's why one of my favorite stories is Pride and Prejudice, the 1995 version of Pride and Prejudice. I'm more of a purist, but that's okay. And it's interesting because there, as you already know probably, Elizabeth Bennet and there's Mr. Darcy, Fitzwilliam Darcy, for, for those who don't know. Um, they, they are there, and as soon as Mr. Darcy sees Elizabeth at the ball, there's something moves within him and his heart is smitten and it takes a while for Elizabeth to sort of catch up with things and then he can't help himself but to propose to her and she just turns him flat down, ah, no, that's, that, that's not happening. And for the rest of the story, she begins to have her own heart awake, awakened to how much she actually turns out to love him and then all of the trials and struggles that they go through, because it seems like every event is there to sort of keep them apart. Even when the story begins to come to one of its climaxes, to where the pompous Lady Catherine de Bourgh shows up at their house, who lives in the magnificent Rosing Parks. And she shows up because she wants to make sure that if Mr. Darcy proposes that she would refuse him because she has plans to marry him off to her daughter. And so um, there's, there's this struggle and Lady Catherine de Bourgh asked to get this uh, acceptance from Elizabeth Bennet and she refuses that if he were to ask, I would not refuse. And so, but yet she knows deep in her heart that's never going to happen because he did and he scarred and off he goes. But that's not how the story ends. And so they finally come back together and there's a happy ending. And we say, that's a good story. And we say, that's a good movie. It's, with all of these struggles that the protagonist goes through, it's called a character arc. We like when the hero or the heroine goes through struggles and it seems like they're having such a difficult time. But then between um, all of the different events that takes place, uh, there's a happy ending. And then we leave the story saying, that was, that was good. We need more things like that. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 41, it has all of those same elements because that's what we're sort of trained to look at. We look at a story to where Joseph is struggling. He keeps getting knocked down. He keeps getting knocked down. 
And then finally, there's this high point within the story. God doesn't forget him, and he's exalted by Pharaoh for interpreting the dream. And we say, that's a great story. So whether or not it's Sunday school or whether or not it's youth ministry, that's our message. Be faithful to God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. But when you get to Genesis chapter 41, that's not the point of the passage. Those, those elements are true. God is providentially working within Joseph's life. But as we saw last time, and what is going to unfold this time, um, there are a number of different contrasts. There's a lot of irony that is happening within the passage itself to show one that that is not satisfying Joseph's heart. That is not bringing him to the place where he wants to be. Because it's not a message that if you're faithful to God that he will give you stuff. The message is that if you're faithful to God, he will put you in the right place at the right time to be properly used by him. And so having the right lenses to interpret the passage is very important. But before we get to Genesis chapter 41, Pastor Joey mentioned um, a set of verses um, either last week or the previous week that I want you to look at this week. Turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we get a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant made to David. It's called the Davidic covenant. Though um, one of the high points is the aspect of the seed, of that there will be the promised one who will come to rule, and his kingship will be a forever kingship, and he will rule with all power. And it's through the line of David. But with an understanding the three lenses that the book of Genesis is put together, the lamb, the seed, the blessing. It begins to give us an understanding when we go back to Genesis chapter 41 that those elements that Joseph is going through, they're, they're really not the way that things are supposed to be. Though they're good, there's a lot of negative going on. But we'll look at that in a moment. Look at verse 8. Let me just sort of read the passage here, the reiteration of the promises that God made first made to Abraham. Look at verse 8 of 2 Samuel 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people. I have been with you, whether you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a, a, make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they will live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more than for, as formerly, even from the day that I have uh, commanded judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to see that's the burial place of Abraham. When you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and, and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance to these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Though we don't have time to really get into that passage, there's the land, there's the seed, and there's blessing. 
that is being reiterated, but especially when it, when it comes to that forever aspect. Though there's a near fulfillment with David and Solomon, there's a far fulfillment that there will be a promised one, a promised one who will crush the head of the serpent. There will be one to where that will come to bring about redemption for his people, a permanent um, salvation to where there will be a kingdom, there will be blessing, and they will be in the land. And so that's the, re the reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant to David called the Davidic covenant here. And so when you go to Genesis chapter 41 and turn there, and then you begin to look at those three lenses um, in this passage, certain elements begin to stand out. There are certain things to where we get to see that everything is not as they appear. And so we are in the generations of Jacob, or the Toledot, as we said, because the book of Genesis is really has 11 different divisions. These are the, these are the generations of. And so we have Joseph's story here, which is actually a part of Jacob's story, because we're in the generations of Jacob. And so Joseph's story is there to show us how God is working in the life of Jacob and bringing about God's plan, his land, his seed, his blessing. And so at this time, Jacob's family's numbering around 70, but yet they're about to be placed in a place to where within a few hundred years, there will be millions of them. A place to where they can be fruitful and multiply and become a nation rather than just a clan of, of people. And so the last time that we saw Joseph, he had been in prison. And then through a series of events, he's forgotten by the cupbearer, and then Pharaoh has, has a dream. And it is through, these, uh, through the aspects of the dreams in which we get to see that Joseph is the only one who can interpret things. And so from Joseph's perspective, it's been one trial after another. All the time, Joseph didn't know the why those tragic events were happening. But it was God who was providentially working in his life. So when Joseph was on his way to his brothers, God had the pit in mind. God was working. And so when, when he was in the pit, God had Potiphar in mind to bring him to. And then when he was with Potiphar, God had the prison in mind to bring about the pair of dreams to the cupbearer and to the chief baker. And when he was in prison, God had Pharaoh in mind. And so there's a larger picture going on here than just the individual events that had, had been taking place in Joseph's life. And we may not know what they are at that time, but, but we do know that God is working out all things for his good and our good. And so God is there working on Joseph's character, building Joseph's service, bringing him to the place where Joseph can continually trust in him despite the circumstances that he is going through. And so God was at work to prepare Joseph for the proper hour. But at the time to where he's in prison, his hour had not cometh. And so Pharaoh had his dreams. And when he has his dreams, Joseph is now about 30 years old. It's been 17 years since he last saw his family. His mind must have been filled with thoughts that will this situation ever end? Will he ever get out of prison? Will he ever see his father again? Will he ever see his brothers again? What did the dream about his family bowing down mean while he was in prison? Will that ever come about? Will he ever get the opportunity to go back to the promised land? Will he ever be buried with his forefathers? And so did God even forget him? And so Pharaoh had a pair of dreams. And as we said last time, that's significant because there are three pairs of dreams that we find in Joseph's life. And each of the time, it underscores the fact that God was at work. 
And so Pharaoh has a pair of dreams. The first one in the first four verses, it's the fat, healthy cows are eaten by the skinny, sick cows. And then in verses 5 through 7, there's the plump, healthy ears of grain being devoured by the skinny, sick ones. And so none of Pharaoh's top men could bring about an interpretation on what that meant. And then the chief cupbearer remembered. There was someone who God spoke through who could interpret the dreams. And so Joseph gets cleaned up. He's brought back before Pharaoh, and he immediately says, it's not me who interprets the dream, but it's God. And Pharaoh knows that he's not an Egyptian, so he also knows that it's not an Egyptian God. But yet, God was at work softening Pharaoh's heart and his advisor's heart so that, so that when the explanation would come about, that there would be seven years of great grain abundance. Seven years to get ready for a seven-year period of severe drought, severe famine. And that Egypt could be the avenue to where it could maintain not only their own nation, but also people from other nations. And so Pharaoh liked the interpretation, liked Joseph's advice, that his advice sort of stood out before everyone, that he puts them in charge. He makes them second in command. He makes them prime minister. And that's significant because he's not an Egyptian. But yet he knew something was special, that God spoke through him. And his advice stood out that he needed him to be a part of his kingdom. And so that's where we were last time. And it's interesting because as you sort of go through that, and if you read that for the first time from the beginning of Genesis till here, you say that, okay, that sounds very good. But understanding the story on where things have evolved, because uh, the, the Bible is not a random set of stories. The stories that we have there, they have a purpose. The book of Genesis is put together with a purpose. And why do we have this taking place? Because there is a purpose on how Moses put together the elements of this story to tell us what is going on. And so if you're reading this story for a first time, there's just something in the back of your mind that would say things are not just right. And to get an understanding, you have to go back to those three themes, those three lenses. And when you put each lens on, it gives us a clear understanding that when you look at, look at Joseph's life and his exaltation, how did he feel about that? Things left a sour taste in his mouth. But we'll see that in a moment. This chapter is full of irony. This chapter is full of contrast because it's not the way that things are supposed to be because of the land promise, because of the seed promise, and because of the blessing promise that's found in the covenant. That was his faith, that he knew that God would eventually work to bring about the promised seed, to bring about redemption. That's all he had, what God communicated through Abraham, through his grandfather Isaac, and through his father Jacob. And like his great-grandfather Abraham, it was counted to him as righteousness. Though the passage doesn't say that, he had great faith. Why? He's mentioned in Hebrews 11, in the great hall of faith. Huh, Joseph is there. Why? Because he's looking through things, not through his temporal eyes, not through his current situation, but through God's eternal plan that he's bringing about. And so when this exaltation happens, he's content with it, but he's not satisfied with it. And so as these events unfold, it's full of irony. Paul Harvey had a uh, radio show before he died in 2009. It was called The Rest of the Story. 
There would be famous stories that he would quickly go over, but there was more to the story than what most people knew. And so here in Joseph's story, there is a rest of the story. What actually is going on? And that's what we're going to see when we begin to look at the lenses. And so there's a lens of the land, there's a lens of the seed, and then there's a lens of the blessing. And so let's look at Joseph's situation through the first lens. It's the most obvious contrast or the most obvious irony, but when you look at Joseph's story, immediately one would say, Joseph is in the wrong land. He's not supposed to be there. And so Joseph is in the wrong land. It's not a surprise, because one, one would say, obviously, he's in the wrong land because of what his brothers had done. And so since chapter 37, he's been in Egypt. And Joseph is supposed to be where? He's supposed to be in the promised land. That's the land that God promised to his great-grandfather. That's where his people are supposed to be. It's irony. But you may say, well, you're beginning to read into the passage a little bit. Well, give me time. Joseph is in the wrong land. Instead of being left to die in a hole like his brothers originally had planned, um, they, begin, they sell him as a slave, and he winds up in Egypt. So the first aspect that we see through the lens that Joseph is in the wrong land. But I want you to look at, uh, look at verse 40. Joseph is blessing the wrong house. Joseph is blessing the wrong house. Verse 40. Pharaoh is exalting Joseph, and he says, You shall be over my house. According to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne shall I be greater than you. And so he's in the house of Pharaoh. It's interesting because that word house is significant to Joseph's storyline, if you would. Because between chapter 39 and here in chapter 41, the word house is used 20 times. There's emphasis there that Moses gives us that we should not lose track of. And it should not be missed. In chapter 39, Joseph finds himself in Potiphar's house. In chapter 40, Joseph is placed in the house of the captain of the guard. And now he's in charge of the house of Pharaoh. Go back to chapter 39 for, for a moment. Look, look at verse 4. We get to see in, in uh, um, verse 4 of chapter 39, he's in the house of Pharaoh. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and that all he owned he put in his charge. It came about from the time he made him overseer of his house, and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. And thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Everything that Joseph touched was blessed by God. Joseph is in the wrong house. He's bringing about blessing to the wrong place. Who should he be blessing? His father, Jacob. Joseph is in the wrong house. Look at verse 21 of chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. And so God was with Joseph. Everything that he touched, God blessed. And now he's in the house of Pharaoh. How did Pharaoh, one of the reasons I think why, why Pharaoh put Joseph in charge was because he asked, well, tell me about this Joseph guy. And so Potiphar said, hey, he was with me. And his God blessed him. We, we were overflowing. 
And then he went to the prison, and God blessed him there when he was in charge. And so Pharaoh looks at things. I want this guy in charge so his God would bless me in accordance. And so he is blessing the wrong house. But not only that, look at verse 42. There's another element of irony going on. Not only is he blessing the wrong house, and he's in the wrong land, he's wearing the wrong clothes. Look at verse 42. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put gold, the gold necklace around his neck. Huh. What was the thing that distinguished his brothers from him? It was a robe. It was a, probably a palm length, maybe a multicolored robe, but it was something to where when they saw Joseph coming to, to check on him, they knew, huh, there's that crazy, crazy robe. He, he's coming. But it said that he was in charge, and his, his father put his trust in him. And so what does Pharaoh do? He puts Joseph in charge, and how does he distinguish him from everyone else? Through a robe. And through wealth, the jewelry, to set him apart. Because Pharaoh gave it to him. He just didn't want to look apart. Pharaoh made him look like a little Pharaoh. And so he was to have been wearing his father's robe and not Pharaoh's robe. That's irony. It's there so he wouldn't miss it. That it's not right of what is going on. It's not a positive thing. But it goes on. Look at verse 43. Not only is he wearing the wrong clothes, but he's getting the wrong respect. Look at verse 43 and 44. He had him ride in his second chariot, and they pro, uh, proclaimed before him, Bow the knee! And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, Yet without your permission, no one shall raise a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And so he was to be looked at and given respect almost as much as Pharaoh. So when he would come, you would bow the knee out of respect. Huh. What happened in chapter 37? What happened in chapter 37 when Joseph tells his brother, I had a dream, and the sheep, they're, 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 they're bowing before my sheep. What did the brother say? Brother said, we will never bow the knee. What do the Egyptians do? They gladly bow the knee because of God's word coming through Joseph. And so that is irony. That is something that should be leaping off, of the, off the page because it's paralleling what had been taking place. That it's not right. Look at chapter 30, uh, uh, 37 in verse 9. Ch Jacob rebukes Joseph for w one of the dreams that he had told. And chapter 7 uh, 37 verse 9 says, Now he still had another dream and related to his brothers and said, Lo, I still have another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But look at that next part in verse 11. But his father kept the saying in mind. Huh. Jacob didn't like the dream that he heard, but he kept it in mind. Why? Because he knew that God was a God who, re who reveals himself. And one of the ways that he reveals himself was through dreams. 
Jacob was very familiar of God talking to him in dreams. Look at chapter 28, if you would, in verse 12. And here we get to see those three lenses, the land, the seed, the blessing. It's a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. But look, look what takes, takes place. Verse 12, and he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth, and its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land which you lie, I will give it to you, and your seed. And your seed will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's that land, the earth, the seed, the blessing. Behold, verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back into the land. It's looking forward to the exodus. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Joseph awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. God revealed himself to Jacob and reiterated the same promise that he made to Abraham in a dream. He was very familiar with God revealing himself in dreams. But that wasn't the first time. Go to chapter 31, if, if you would. In chapter 31, we, we find a second dream in which God is talking to Jacob and reveals himself. Laban is trying to deceive Jacob. And the angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream. Verse 10 of Genesis 31. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating. And I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, male goats were mating with striped, speckled, and molted. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and molted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. For I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Jacob is about to receive great wealth from God because of what Laban had done and reveals this to Jacob in a dream. So now when you get to chapter 41, you get to see that Jacob was very familiar with dreams. And when the son shows up to say, I had a dream, but I had more than one dream, it should have said volumes to Jacob that God is in this somehow. And he should have cautioned his boys, boys, you need to listen to your brother because God is speaking. But he rebukes him. But yet he tucks it away because he realizes God must be in this somehow. So he's getting the wrong respect. He should be getting the respect of his father and his brothers. But no, he's getting the respect from pagans. And so, he's getting the wrong respect. Look at verse 45 of chapter 41. It doesn't stop there. Joseph, now when you look at him, has the wrong identity. And everything about it is bad. It's all irony. He has the wrong identity. Look at the first part of verse 45. We find that he is given a pagan name. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath-Paneah. 
Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you find out that names are very important in the Old Testament. They generally signify a covenantal relationship that they have with their God. So when you're given a name, or especially when your name is changed, it means something. Abram's name was changed to Abraham by God. Sarai was changed to Sarah. It means something about God's covenantal relationship. Jacob's name is changed to Israel by God. And so names are very important. And then later on, even some prophets, they're told by God, I want you to name your kid a certain name. And so there's one prophet, Hosea, who's married to Gomer. And he has a second child, a daughter, named Lorahama, which means no mercy. Why? He was bringing a, a message of judgment to the nation to say that God is about to bring judgment and he will not show any mercy to you. So I find that funny because every time that the daughter would show up, here comes no mercy. She's a party killer <laughs> because just by her name, it's like you're reminded. But their names were very significant. And so Pharaoh changes Joseph's name. That's a bad thing. But there's another place in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, where their names were changed. And we immediately say, oh, that's definitely a bad thing. Their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. But we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Belshazzar. Ah, that's the extra point for the Bible quiz. Belshazzar. We don't know David's pagan name, but yeah. And so we say immediately, that's a bad thing. Because when your name is changed, it, it is there to reflect the pagan culture or the pagan gods. And their names reflect that. And here, Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian name. And so we don't know the exact meaning behind Joseph's name, uh, Zaphnath Panea, but it somehow probably reflects back to the pagan culture, to the pagan gods, rather than the God of Israel. And so Joseph is given a pagan name. But look at the next part of the verse. It doesn't stop there. He's given a pagan wife. He, Pharaoh, gave him uh, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. He is given a pagan wife. Huh. You think that's significant? That's huge. Why would he take a pagan wife? He takes a pagan wife is because we forget he's still a slave. He's not free. He just has a higher master. He has a higher master in the world empire. There, there, there's no one higher than Pharaoh. But he is still a slave. And as a slave, the slave master would give him a wife. And so that is significant. Because he didn't choose her. He was given her. Does that matter? Well, look at Genesis chapter 24. That is huge. And it's always a huge thing with the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. And Abraham was old, advanced in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from any of the daughters of Canaan among whom I live. But you will go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife for my son Isaac. And so he could not marry outside of the covenant community. Same thing happens with Jacob, in Genesis chapter 28, though you don't have to turn there, Jacob is told by Isaac that you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And so why is that significant? 
because God's people have always told, do not marry the pagans. Do not marry outside of God's covenantal relationship. And the reason for this is not to keep the bloodline pure. Because if you look at the Messianic bloodline, it's full of Gentiles. It's not to keep them to have a pure blood. It's not to maintain a pure ethnicity. It's to keep their hearts from being drawn away from the God of Isaac and uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's why. Because if you marry a pagan wife, it'll pull your heart away. And look at Solomon. He was a wreck. He's the smartest man in the world, but his personal life was just a wreck. All them wives and pagan wives and things going on to draw his heart away. So when Joseph is given a wife in Genesis chapter 41, it has the potential to be troublesome for Joseph. Joseph had this great prosperity, this great privilege, this great power, this probably a great wife because she was probably one to wear of, of immense beauty because he's representing Pharaoh. I'm going to give you the best of the best. Here she is. But not only that, not only is she a pagan, she's the daughter of the priest of the religion. Oh, that even puts a sting to it in Joseph's mind. And he gave him as, as Senath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. It's another element that was there that could have pulled Joseph's heart away from worshiping the true God. But it goes on. Look at the end of verse 45. Not only does he have a pagan name, not only does he have a pagan wife, he rules over the wrong land. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. He had complete rule over everything that had taken place. He was put in charge to make ready for the seven years of great plenty to amass as much as they could for the seven years of severe famine. So not only would Egypt be saved through that, but also through the nations that surrounded them to be able to not starve to death, but be able to buy their, buy their grain from them and survive. Pharaoh liked that idea. And so he's, in, he's ruling over the wrong land. So if you looked at Joseph's identity at this point, he looks completely different from how it's supposed to be. He looks totally Egyptian. His language is Egyptian. His accent by now is Egyptian. He's married to an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. His occupation is in the Egyptian government. Yes, that was the Bengals reference. I couldn't help myself, but so, sorry. But everything about him was completely Egyptian. And that's going to be key for when his brothers show up in the next chapter. They are going to have no clue that he is Joseph, their brother, because his, his identity is completely Egyptian. He's in the wrong land. He's blessing the wrong house. He has the wrong identity. He's wearing the wrong clothes. He has the wrong name. He has a pagan wife. He's, he has the wrong respect, and he rules over the wrong land. Moses gave us these details to have us realize that these are not a positive occurrence. They're not the high point in Joseph's life. So if these are all negatives, where are the positives? What, what are my takeaways that I can begin to take? Why did God give us this passage? Well, glad you asked. Because you need to put on the lens of the seed in the lens of the blessing. And the passage begins to open up. It gives us an understanding so look at verse 46 through the lens of the seed. We get a textual indicator here that Moses didn't have to give us, but it's there for a reason to have us begin to appreciate God's providence 
not only in Joseph's life, not only in the nation of Israel as they're about to go to five, 400 years of slavery, but also in your life when you don't see God at work. Look what it says at the beginning of the verse. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land. Is that land again? Of Egypt. It's been 13 years since he heard a Hebrew word spoken. It's, it's going to be another 10 years before he sees his father again. He's going to be almost 40 until he sees his brothers. There's going to be seven years of famine, then seven years. And so when you begin to put the math together, over half of his life has been away from the, from the covenant people, from worshiping God in a group the right way. And so that is a textual indicator to know that it's almost a lifetime that Joseph is struggling away from the land, away from his father, away from those whom he loved, and learning to trust in God despite his circumstances. We complain to God after a week, and we think God fell off his throne when we don't see God answering our prayers and things are hard. But that is there for us to see the timeline of Joseph and God providentially working in his life. And we're not to leave out that one detail. And so just because the details of our life are taking a long time doesn't mean that God has forgotten us and it doesn't mean that we fell through God's cracks. We just don't see the big picture as God sees it. We don't see that God's hand is at work, but it doesn't mean he's not working. It doesn't mean those bad events that has happened in your life aren't there for a reason because you don't see the big picture yet. But as things begin to unfold, we begin to understand Jeremiah as he tells the nation that there's going to be judgment. But in uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, let me read you this verse. Jeremiah says, For I know the plans which I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Even though there are hard times, God is still on the throne. Look at verse 47 now. We see the seed lens at work. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. I mean, they had so much grain, they didn't know what to do with it. And not just for one year, but for seven years. And they had to build more storehouses and more storehouses. Because if you had, had this much this year and needed that much next year, you just had to keep building. And that's what they did. Seven years of plenty. Verse 48, so he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. And he placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Huh. That sounds like something I've heard. That sounds like something that I just read. Because over in Genesis chapter 32, in verse 12, Jacob is fleeing from Esau and crossing the Jordan. And we find this. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Hmm. Coincidence? No. Moses is telling us there's a relationship to the grain the, uh, from the seed-producing plants and the ultimate seed that there is something to where that is going to be coming about beyond all measure. 
that there would be a promised seed. So somehow with the years of great plenty and the years of famine, that is related to the promised seed coming. It is there as a textual indicator. He's storing up seed in Egypt, so the promised seed, that seed line, because Joseph still doesn't know if it's going to be through his line, the promised one's going to come, or if it's through one of his brothers. They don't know. He doesn't know. He just knows that God has called him to store seed. But we'll come back to the seed in a moment. Look at verse 50. We're putting on the lens of blessing. There's more positive. So somehow, him collecting things through the seed, it's related. But also, there's great blessing. Verse 50. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Have to pause there for a moment because that is significant. Because throughout Joseph's story, going back to chapter 37, we really don't know Joseph's full heart on how he's feeling his situation, how he's enduring his hardship. We know that God's blessing him, but many times when God blesses his people, there's still an avenue of bitterness and resentment, and they want revenge. They want justice because they were ill wrong. They, were, they weren't treated properly, and they want, they want God's glory to be on display by them getting justice. There's baggage there, or could be there. And so is Joseph bitter? Is he now corrupt with the extravagance of wealth and power, and pagan wife, and pagan religion? What's going on inside his heart? We actually don't know. We're not told yet. But we get to see exactly where it is through the naming of his children. Huh. This is amazing. Because it is through the lens of blessing. It is through his imprisonment and now his exaltation, we get to see exactly where Joseph is spiritually. And it's good news. For two reasons. First of all, we get to see that he still identifies with his covenant God. He is there identifying with his covenant God because he acknowledges that God has, is the one that brought this about. Joseph has the same walk with God as he had before. During the difficult times, it may be easy to walk with God, but what about the struggles that comes with times of great prosperity? God could be sort of pushed off to the side. Will his walk remain? Because it's easy for him to turn aside from his Hebrew roots. It would have been easy for him for the prosperity that he was experiencing experiencing to push God out. It would be easy for him to become larger than life in his own eyes. It would be easy for him to get lost in the Egyptian culture. It would be easy for him to abandon his family for his wife's family because it's just there. But bitterness did not fill his heart. God gave him a heart of forgiveness that's going to unfold here and through the rest of the book we get to see this so he still identifies with his covenant god but secondly i just want you to notice the next part of the verse he still identifies with his covenant people by the naming of his children he is there identifying with his covenant people the people of abraham isaac and jacob how does he do it? Because he gives his sons Hebrew names. That's huge. Why? To everyone else, he looks like an Egyptian. And he gives them Hebrew names. He had no say in receiving his name. He had no say on his new wife. He had no say on his new position. He had no say on his new living arrangements. The only thing he had, he had a say with is what I'm going to name my children, and I'm going to have them reflect the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not, and not an Egyptian name. 
which basically says that I'm turning my back on everything that Egypt, that Egypt offers for what God offers. He's identifying himself with God's covenant people, despite the surroundings that he finds himself. And so by giving them Hebrew names, and when an Egyptian would say, see them and say their name, they would say, that's a foreign name. Ah, it's Hebrew. Oh, what's that about? And he would say, it was an instant testimony of Joseph's faith and trust in the God of his fathers. And his intentions were to bring them up in his faith by giving them Hebrew names. Why is this important? It's because he still doesn't know where the promised line was going to go through. It had to go through one of his brothers, and so he wanted to pass along his faith to his sons, and he gives them Hebrew names. Look at verse 51. We see the first name, and that is significant. It's one of the high points of the passage. Joseph names his firstborn Manasseh, for he... For God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. Manasseh. Manasseh means making me forget. God made him forget. Not his family, not, not, not his father, not everything that God has done. God made him forget the pain, the hardship, the sorrow the guilt, and he is saying that he has forgiven them for what they had done. It means the Manasseh that, he, that Joseph has chosen to define himself in the hope that he had in God rather than his current circumstances. He is saying that the things of the past that scarred him would not define him and that's huge. I love what, how Bodhi Bakum uh, paraphrases the word Manasseh. He says, Manasseh means I let that stuff go. What, whatever the kind of pain that one goes through in their life, because we all have baggage, we've all been scarred in some way, you let that stuff go and you leave it with God. And God takes that pain and he wipes it away. Because the Egyptians could have said, Joseph, your brothers hated you and despised you. And Joseph would say, Manasseh, I let that stuff go. Joseph, they wanted to kill you. They left you in a hole. And he would say, Manasseh, I don't let that define who I am. They said, Joseph, they sold you in as a slave, and he would say, Manasseh, it doesn't matter. I left that burden with God. I'm not going to let that define me. Joseph, why identify yourselves with those people? And he would say, Manasseh, it's because God is faithful, and I let all that pain go because it doesn't define me. And so the flesh, when something bad happens, it wants to hold on to those things. It wants to sort of cling to those things. And we hold on to grudges. And many in the church that come to church every Sunday, they come to sit and to soak and to sour because someone did them wrong five years ago or ten years ago. Manasseh, you need to let that stuff go. But you, you may say to me, well, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. Manasseh, let that stuff go. Give up that burden. You don't have to carry that baggage any longer. And each one of us has some kind of baggage that we carry. It's just our flesh. It just does. There's something about our past that's there, and it eats at us when we're alone. Let, let it go. 
leave the burden at the cross where it should be. Jesus takes those things. Well, you may say, I have a trust issue. People have let me down. I can't trust anyone. Let it go. Put your trust in God. And see the big picture that God used those things to make you into the person who you are today. That you can come alongside someone else who is hurting in the same way. You may say, well, <laughs> I'm just Italian. You know, I just get angry. I yell a lot. No, we don't excuse our sin by, by, you know, just by saying, ah, I'm Italian. Because everyone's angry. Irish people, Latin people, everyone, everyone's angry about something. They're all loud. Let it go. Don't excuse your sin. Leave it at the cross. You say, well, you, 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 never, you never knew my father and what he said and what he done. Let it go. Maybe you never even had a father. But God is the definition of a father to the fatherless. Don't define your situation by the horizontal, by the earthly. Look at, look at God and define things by him. And let those burdens of the past go. People blame their family. Huh, you, you don't know my family. I, I live in a dysfunctional household. They're crazy. Well, you don't realize that every family is a dysfunctional household. Matter of fact, the first, cu the first couple that there ever was invented the word dysfunction. That's just who they are. But in the time that we have left, look at verse 52, the naming of Joseph's second son. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God had made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim literally means to be fruitful, and God blessed him abundantly. It means to be abundantly fruitful. God has taken Joseph from rags, from the pit of prison, gave him immense wealth, prosperity to, to, for a lifetime. And that's true. And he recognizes God with that. But it doesn't stop there. He didn't define himself on the temporal. Because how great Egypt was to him, look at the next phrase. Egypt was still the land of his Affliction. How did he view his time in Egypt? It was still misery, oppression, affliction. That's the meaning of that word. Though he had privilege, deep down in his heart, he didn't want to be there. He wanted to be in the land of promise. He wanted to be with his family. He wanted to, see, to be God working through him, through God's covenantal people. But he viewed his time in Egypt as the land of his affliction. Because he knew that God promised much more. That there is a city that is built on a hill that's not designed by man. It's designed by God. Later, the land is described as the land that flows milk and honey. It's a prosperous land. But yet there's one day there will be a better land in a kingdom that will last forever, ruled by the promised one. That's where he wanted to be. So much so that by Genesis chapter 50 and reiterated in Hebrews chapter 11, Joseph basically says, do not leave my bones in Egypt. I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried in the promised land that God has promised. Bury me in the burial ground that my great-grandfather bought because we own it. That's why I want to be buried. It was the land of his affliction. And how many times do we look to get the best as we can out of this life? And we go to school to get the right degree, and we go and get the right job, but God doesn't have the right proper place in our life. Because this, we don't see this is the land of our affliction. We have dual citizenship. We're just passing through. We're just pilgrims. We're just on, on our way through. We're here as ambassadors to represent God to a lost world. That's us. We're not meant to stay here. There's a far better place where there's no more sorrow, 
where there's no one, there's no more pain, and there's the righteous one who is worthy, who is ruling on the throne. That's, that's our hope. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, keep seeking the things above. The, the, those are our goals. Those are our aspirations. That's where our hope is. No matter how hard things are here, there's a better place. That, because this world is the land of our affliction. And so by the naming of his children, it sets things together. And so my, my time is gone. But where are you today with your walk? Do you still have those burdens from the past that you haven't fully given over to God? They're there, and they hurt, and they sting, and there's pain. Manasseh, get rid of them. You're washed in the blood. Those things are gone. Don't take that burden back on to your shoulders. Leave it with Christ, who is the burden bearer. Leave those things. God has a bigger picture. He's at work. He can glorify you because of your past. Take hold and comfort in that. But maybe you have never placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you're just looking at things to where, oh, I'm not that bad. But you don't see the life that you're living as one to where if you were to die today, you hope that you would get to heaven. Because you've never put your complete faith and trust in Christ. You need to turn from your sin and turn to God. Take that pain that you're harboring. Take that void and give it to Christ. Turn from your selfish pride and self-reliance and turn to him. And he will forgive you of your sin. He will see that you're not a victim that the choices that you make, they're your choices, but yet you are incomplete without him as the center of your life, the one who redeemed you because he paid the price that you could never pay. And so you need to turn to him in faith and cling to the cross and let your life of sin go because he paid that price. Father, so much more could be said, but we thank you that through Joseph's life, not only can we see the irony that things aren't right, but we could see his faithfulness despite his circumstances in the naming of his son and how he views his task to protect the promised seed line that would to come through the abundance of the seed. And so, Father, we ask that help us glorify Christ with everything we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.